Can you uh, turn to someone and say thank you for being here today? Thank you for being my brother, my sister, for sitting next to me. Uh, Today's the Lord's Day. It's a good day. It's a great day to be here. Um, If you're new, welcome. Uh, Welcome in. It's such a blessing for us to have you. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about something that um, we don't maybe often hear about in, in, in church, or we hear, but we hear about it everywhere else. When I was in fourth grade, I was part of a, a mixed class, uh, fourth graders and fifth graders, Mr. Kalen's class at Herndon Elementary School. We were meeting in a, in, a, in a portable. That's where our classroom was. I was in fourth grade. Half the class was like me, and then the other half of the class were fifth graders. And so fourth and fifth graders w- would have to do age-appropriate things. Some things were done differently. A lot of things were done together. But I remember on this one particular day, uh, me and my fourth grade cronies were coming back from like gym class or something like that, music or art, and we're walking back, and uh, some of the fifth graders in our class were heading somewhere else. And so there was this one friend of mine named Jay Murdoch. He was a fifth grader, and he was running like kind of like he was like a like a uh, uh, like an airplane, and he was running as fast as he could through the uh, outside of the school building. And he was yelling, and he was saying, "Sex Ed, <laughs> Sex Ed, I'm going to Sex Ed. I'm going to learn about sex." That's what he was saying. And I was looking, and I was like, "Man, that guy's kind of crazy." As he was running to hear what the world had to teach him about sex. As we come to church to be the church this morning in this room, we're going to have our own sex education session here. And it's important that we get it here because if we don't hear, the Bible is remarkably thorough in its treatment of sex, I should say. From Genesis until uh, most of the books of the Bible talk about sex. Um, There's one book that's completely dedicated in descriptive poetic imagery about the glories and the beauties of sex. We're going to talk about that today because if we don't talk about it, then here's what's going to happen. Uh, Someone will fill that vacuum of understanding and learning with uh, their understanding and their knowledge and their agenda and what they're trying to sell and what they're trying to push on you and our children as it relates to sex. And so today I want to talk about the biblical message of sex. And it's really not that complicated because when you hear it from the world, whether you're children, whether you are ready or not to learn about sex, There are people and there are forces in this world that are pushing their worldview on our children. Uh, Our oldest daughter's nine years old, and she's got an email account where she she writes emails to her cousins and her friends who are out of state. And oftentimes, I need to check that to make sure that there's no silly, shady stuff that's being... Uh, that's being sent into her mailbox because there are things that come all the time. I don't know. I haven't seen anything yet in hers. But if it's not through email, then we're going to be watching the NBA Finals game two with our children, and then all of a sudden there's going to be stuff that's sexual in their innuendo that pops up, whether it be through dancers on screen, whether it be through a beer commercial, whether it be through a travel commercial where we see people who are dressed in, in not much popping up on the TV screen. You'll see that. You'll see it in the Internet. You'll see it everywhere. You're standing at the checkout line at, at Target, and you'll see the tabloids, and you'll see the National Enquirer or the Us Weekly, and the heroes and the role models of our children who are dressed in lingerie as they give their concerts or as they stand uh, in, in front of your children in the checkout aisle, uh, staring back at them or all communicating a message of sensuality, uh, whether or not it's the message we want to teach them or not, it doesn't matter because it's coming into their minds. And if we don't get it and if we don't see it and if we don't begin speaking into their... Like I said, my kids, we, I mean, my, our generation, we learned it in fifth grade, right? Fifth grade. And so the, uh, they're even saying that the, uh, the, 
uh, average incidence of the first exposure to pornography is in single digits now. So I don't want to be naive to think that um, it's, not being, it's not being taught to our children in some way, shape, or form. And so I want to give the biblical teaching on at least one of the biblical teachings, but you'll see that it's remarkably consistent from the beginning to the end, spanning 2,000-plus years of human history, different authors, different writers to different contexts, and yet the teaching on sexuality, human sexuality, is remarkably consistent. So I want to look at that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 9, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, and we're just going to, I'm just going to highlight two thoughts here. Um, that you'll see throughout the pages of Scripture that we see in explicit form here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth. Uh, and as he writes these words to them, uh, he writes these words uh, through the eternal counsel of God's Word, writes them to us here in the 21st century. God's Word, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, in, in, in quotes, it says, everything is permissible for me. That was a phrase that was constantly thrown out in Corinth. So they're saying, hey, he's quoting them. Everything is permissible for me. He's agreeing, but he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Here's another quote. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, Paul says, but God will destroy them both. Body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the Lord, I'm sorry, the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you see from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. The same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is God's word. So Paul is writing to a to a church in a city called Corinth. So if he were writing today, he might be writing to a church in the city of Winter Garden. But Corinth was not Winter Garden, although you can make some kind of parallels. The city of Corinth was uh, famous for two things. One, it was extremely wealthy and it was extremely artistic. And so when you're wealthy and you're artistic, artistic and wealth, art and wealth, uh, both of these have their own views on sexuality. Right? There's a, 
a very clear connection between these two things. So what he's doing is he's trying to explain to the church in Corinth who's in the midst of this kind of Corinthian culture uh, who has their own understanding of sex, what the biblical, what God's word says on sex. Now, in in those days, here's what happened. Um, Two dominant views. The first one comes from these mystery religions. He talks about when you have sex with a prostitute, there were these mystery religions in uh, in Corinth, where if you wanted to worship these mystery religions and these mysterious gods, you would go to the temple where there would be temple prostitutes and you would have sexual, sexual relationships with them, and that was part of the act of worship. You'd be driven into this sense of ecstasy, and there they said you would meet with your God. So in the midst of this kind of a culture, the, one of the, and probably the dominant view of sex was if you've got the urge, <laughs> you've got to splurge. You got that desire, then you go satisfy that desire. You can go to the temple, you can go with prostitutes, but if you've got that desire, you splurge on that. The other view comes from more the Plato, the Platonic side. You might have said, oh, that girl and that guy, they're not dating. They're just in a Platonic relationship. They're just friends. And where that comes from is the idea of Plato. Plato's view was that the spirit, the soul is good and the body is bad. And so the, 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 the view that was influenced by Plato about sex is you've got these sexual urges, but instead of splurging on them, you need to silence them. In other words, one view says you've got to splurge, and the other view says you need to submerge that urge. So there's two views. One says you've got to act on it. The other side says you've got to starve it. And there was confusion in the church of Ephesus because they don't know. It seems like it's a good thing that God has given to us, but all these bad religions are doing these things. So should we then not do it? And so they're, they're kind of going back and forth between should we splurge or should we submerge the urge to have sex within our own lives. And so Paul enters into that place and he says, let me, let me give you the teaching that comes from the beginning of time until now. And this is what he says. Two things, very simple here. The first thing is this. That sex is an amazing wedding gift from God to husbands and wives. Here's what sex is. Sex is an amazing wedding gift. So the the first, you go back to the beginning. The first marriage that ever happened between Adam and Eve in a garden. God blesses that union. In fact, he brought Eve to Adam out of himself. The two become one. And he says, hey, 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 uh, you guys are going to get married. Here's my wedding gift. What, what, What would God give if he visited a wedding? If he went to that wedding, he could give anything. He's got all the money. He owns a cattle and a thousand hills. What will God give to Adam and Eve as a wedding gift? He says, here it is. The best gift that I can give to you is sex. And he gives it to them. Well, how do you know? The first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, right? Let's make man in our own image. They get married. And then he says, the first command ever given in Scripture. The first, do you know what the first command in Scripture is? Not name the animals, not do all these other things. The first command he gives, and he gives to a married couple, is be fruitful and multiply. How do you do that, God? <laughs> you figure it out, right? You don't need to, oh, yeah, we... Uh, I'll get to that in a second, but husband and wife, we figured out, okay, biologically, just make it work. What is God saying? The first command he gives, he gives is have sex, Adam and Eve, have it, have lots of it in order that you'll be fruitful and that you'll multiply. Many times over, God is saying have sex. This is awesome, and this is weird maybe to our minds because we don't think that God could possibly have given us sex because we think God is prude, that God is a little bit weird, that somehow God said make kids without having sex, but we think God couldn't have possibly given us that gift. 
but the first command in Scripture given to a married couple is have sex with each other. It's crazy, but it's awesome, and that's the gift that God gives. Now, God didn't just tell Adam and Eve to have sex in order for the purpose of procreation or for population. That's not the only reason. He gives it for the sake of their pleasure. If it, I mean, he, God could have made the procreation process, the procreationary, the procreative process in a million different ways. It could have been like, hey, push her belly button and a baby. He could have done it a million different ways. I don't know how. I mean, he could have done it a million different ways, but he did it in this way that is so desirable and so pleasurable because that's God's desire. That not Maybe because when you see those kids and you get frustrated with those kids, you're like, I would never have another one of those ever again in my life. And then you think about how you made it and you're like, okay, maybe I will do it again. But whatever reason, God's design for sex is not simply in order that you would procreate and fill the earth, but it was given for the purpose of our pleasure. And if you read through the Song of Songs, Song of Songs is... The, the, the title gives it away. There are many songs that we sing, but this is the ultimate song that we can sing. A song of a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, which portrays the love relationship between God and his people. Saying this is the ultimate of songs. And all throughout, it's not like this mechanical process where one thing does another thing and then it leads to a baby. No, there's delight, there's pleasure, there's joy, there's a sense of, of we love this act in which we're getting together in sexual union. Proverbs chapter 5, verses uh, 18 through 23, another place. In fact, in the first seven chapters in Proverbs, which those chapters were written to a young man, four of those first seven chapters talk about sex. In particular, in chapter 5, it's this beautiful exposition in graphic imagery, just poetic imagery. You've got to imagine a little bit what it's saying, but you can understand it if you're familiar with the male and female sexual organs. Um, it's talking about the beauty of those things and of the pleasure of it, and he gives it in two contexts. One, he says to men, you must delight in the body of your wife, delight in the body of your spouse, but don't let your sexual stuff go outside of the realm of your marriage. And then he says, do not find delight in the body of an adulterer, in the body of another woman outside of marriage. What do you say? The same thing that's being said, same thing that's being said. From the beginning until now, God's word was clear. That sex is God's wedding gift. It's an amazing wedding gift, and it's given to husbands and wives in the context of marriage. And so here we go. Uh, in Corinthians, we get to, to, to the letter of the Corinthians, and Paul is writing to this church that is swimming in one uh, just an, uh, a bipolar understanding of sex, but they don't really understand the biblical underpinnings for it. They don't understand God's heartbeat for sex, and so they're confused about sex, and so sexual immorality is running rampant because they're taking cues from the world. And so in light of that, Paul gives this amazing and wonderful teaching here. Now, one of the things that happened is that these Christian folks were getting married, and they were not having sex. And the reason is because they looked at these mystery religions and said, you know what, sexuality was part of these other religions, but it wasn't part, uh, it's, it's not part of our religion. At least that's what they thought. And so it says in chapter 7, um, verse 2, it says, but since there's so much immorality, right? He says, it's better for you not to get married, but you're living in a culture with so much sexual immorality. And so he says in verse 2, you know, I'd rather have you not married, but because of the, the sexual drive and all that stuff, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, have sex with each other. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. The same way, husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So you hear this kind of, I don't know if you've heard this sometimes, maybe amongst a a certain group of Christian friends, you hear something like this, hey, we got married and, um, yeah, you know, we really want to center our marriage on Jesus, right, on the gospel, on Christ. And so what we want to do is um, that first night we get married, uh, we're not going to have sex. We're just going to pray all night. We're going to worship God all night. We're going to read the Bible all night and and we're not going to have sex. Anyone know people like that? Or, hey, hey, where are you guys going on your honeymoon? It's going to be awesome, right? No, 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 we're not going to go on a honeymoon. We're going to go on a mission trip. <laughs> we're going to go to Africa, and we're actually, we're not going to have sex until maybe like after that mission trip because we want our lives to be just completely be consecrated to God. God is saying, no, 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 that's not the way, that's not the way it was meant to be. It's not the way it was meant to be. Marriage is a covenant, okay? Marriage is a covenant, and in every biblical covenant, the sign of the covenant, there, there was a sign of the covenant. There was an action that was done in order to ratify that covenant, and what the Word of God is saying is that the marriage covenant between God, a man, and a woman, the marriage covenant, the sign of that covenant is that there is a sexual union that happens in order to consummate that marriage. That's the sign of the covenant. So instead of saying, hey, no, 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 don't have sex, husband and wife, he's saying, you do it. Have sex as a married couple, as a husband and wife, because that brings the relationship together and brings it to its consummation. Here's what God is saying then. From beginning of the, the beginning of Genesis until 1 Corinthians 7 and, and throughout, he says, sex is God's amazing wedding gift given to a husband and to a wife. <clears throat> Outside of that context, God does not give that gift to anybody else. And the Bible is clear about this. In fact, there was a, a documentary that HBO put out about sexuality and interviewed all of these different people and did this focus group, all these studies, long-term, all that stuff. And he said that the number one, the, the group of people who have the highest rate of sexual satisfaction, okay, almost 90% were heterosexual Christian married couples who are committed to each other. So almost 90% in their sexual satisfaction. Okay, it's not the single swinging crowd. It's not the single crowd that goes and meets people at bars. It's not the Tinder group. It's not the people who, whatever it is, the, the couple that's committed to each other, but they're not yet married and they're sleeping around. Not that kind of, the, the highest rate of satisfaction in the sexual relationship is between Christian men and women in the context of marriage. Why? I'll tell you why. Because that's the context in which God created for it to be enjoyed. It's interesting because even at a, at a physiological level, and I, I checked this with some, some doctors, but there are studies that have been, that, that, that have been done. A man named Norman Dodge says, <clears throat> when a husband and wife, man, when a man and woman have sex, there is a release of a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Okay? Uh, dopamine is the hormone that uh, is the uh, chemical that is associated with, uh, with pleasure. Right? It's also the chemical that is released that, uh, creates an addictive an addiction to something. So when you shoot up drugs, dopamine is released in you to do two things. One, to bring pleasure through the drugs that you're shooting up, and two, to form that addictive bond between you and the drug that you're shooting into yourself. When the sexual union happens, here's what's happening. Dopamine is being released so that one of two things happen. One, there is pleasure. Obviously, there's pleasure, but it becomes addictive 
so that you become addicted to the relationship or to the person or to the sexual, uh, to the sexual act in which you're engaging. Okay, that's what happens. And that's partly the reason why God says the two will become one flesh because that's what's happening. You're growing an addiction to that person because that's the way that it was meant to be within the context of marriage. Another thing that happens, Helen Fisher says this, and and, uh, our resident doctor, pastor, scholar, Josiah Cha says the same thing. When the sexual union happens, there's a release of another hormone, another chemical neurotransmitter called oxytocin. Oxytocin is the same chemical that's fired when two things. One, when a mother is nursing her child. So when nursing happens, this is the very thing that causes bonding and emotional attachment between a child and his or her mother. The same thing that is released in that kind of an emotional bond is being released in the sexual act as well. I also learned that oxytocin is closely related to our tears. And so when you cry, oxytocin gets released as well. And the threshold in which that gets released is lower for girls than it is for guys. That's why uh, women tend or girls tend to cry more than guys in general. It's very interesting. That's why when you cry with somebody, you feel this instant bond with them. Because the releasing of oxytocin causes an emotional attachment to form with the person with whom you share those tears. The same is true when you have sex. Oxytocin is released and you begin to bond and attach yourself emotionally. It's not just a physical thing, which we'll get to in a second, but there's a bonding that begins to occur. And when a husband and wife have sex, that's why Paul says, do it often. Don't deprive each other, right? Obviously, if she doesn't want to, then don't force it, and he doesn't want to, don't force it. But there ought to be a frequency of the sex act between a husband and a wife because that re- it ratifies the covenant of marriage over and over again and brings bonding between a husband and a wife. So understand this, guys. There's only two categories, and we've been saying this for six weeks here. Paul writes that you're either single or you're married. You're single or you're married. If you're married, then sex is God's gift to you and to your husband or your wife and to you guys alone. Not premarital, not extramarital, but within the marriage relationship. If you're not married, then check this out, newsflash, you are single. If you're dating, you're single. If you're engaged, you're single. If you're getting married tomorrow, you're still single. And so the teaching of Scripture is, unless you're married, then this gift is not for you. Not right now. Because a lot of times we think there's this third category because I'm a a mature person or because I'm 50 years old and I'm about to get married. We think there's a third category because I'm a Christian and we can create this third category of, uh, yeah, there's single, there's married, but I'm also dating, right? Because I'm dating, I have access to her or his body parts that uh, single people don't get to. Or because we're engaged or because we're committed to each other, I can begin to unwrap this gift before it's time. No, Paul is making it very clear, and the rest of Scripture makes it very clear. It's within the context of marriage. If you have not said, I do, then you ought not be taking parts of a person's body that do not belong to you. You go to an antique store, they say, you can look, but you cannot touch. Why? Because that's not yours. It's not yours. So what does Paul say? Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, treat older men as your father, okay? younger men like brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That's what he says. 
So I'm in a relationship, DL. I'm in a relationship with a girl, and she's older than me by a month. So how far is too far? Here's how far is too far. What, would, what you would not do with your mother, don't do with her. And maybe you need to think about these things because that's what God is saying, absolute purity. Okay, well, well, she's younger than me. Then don't do with her what you wouldn't do with your sister. And to our sisters, you're dating somebody who's older. How far is too far? Don't do with him what you wouldn't do with your daddy or with your brother. Absolute purity. Because sex is an amazing gift. But it's a wedding gift that God gives to a husband and to a wife starting the day of their wedding after they've said their vows before God and before people in that covenant relationship. And only when that covenant has been made verbally and in front of witnesses, in front of God, can that uh, ratification of that covenant, the consummation of that covenant happen through the sexual union. The Bible is very clear about that, right? Very clear about that. That's the first thing that we see. Sex is God's amazing gift, amazing gift from God to husbands and wives in the context of marriage. First thing. What happens if we push against this? Same thing that happens if we push against any of the laws of God. You push against the laws of gravity, you're hurting yourself. You're not breaking the laws of gravity. The laws of gravity are breaking you. What happens when we push against the laws of human sexuality that are ordained in Scripture? The second thing that we see here that outside of marriage, sex is dangerous and destructive. The thing is, if you listen to the sermons of the world, you probably wouldn't believe this. Satan's sermons are preached in the movies, in the media, through the music that we listen to. Three to four times There are three to four times more instances and scenes of sex amongst unmarried people than there are sex amongst married people in the TV shows and the movies that you and I watch. It's probably more than that. I think that was a little bit of a dated statistic. But I can't think of, I mean, I can't think of many, I can think of so many more times where it's portrayed between unmarried people or people who are married to other folks who are hooking up and having this whatever it is, that this kind of uh, uh, adultery, which is, there's nothing adult about it. So where did all of this come from? Well, I, I, I started talking last week about uh, the dating process as we have it now. Back in the day, it, marriages were all arranged. And then in the early 1900s, it became where mom and dad, if they had a daughter and they liked a young man, they would call him over to the house and he would come and he would sit on the porch or the parlor or somewhere and he would talk to her dad, right? And if mom and dad liked him, they would call him back again and said, maybe this guy, can, you, can, you can give him a chance. That kind of evolved when, when cars were made and, and dudes would go and they would pick up the girl and say, let's get, I don't want to be around your parents. Your parents scare me. They kind of like weird me out. Um, I, let, why don't we, uh, let's go out and, and let's go to a restaurant. Let's go to a, a movie theater. Let's go to somewhere else. Let's go take a walk. And stripped from the protection of the parents' watchful eye, All kinds of other things began to happen within that context. And then you fast forward three decades and you get to the 60s and the sexual revolution and hippies and Playboy magazine and all of these things that overtly put sex in your face in a completely different way from what Scripture tells us. And then there were these unwanted pregnancies. And so birth control pill came out and said, well, let's take this pill before we have sex. We're not married 
but uh, we don't want to have, so we don't want to have children. And so they would have sex, but they would take birth control pill. And then another problem popped up. It was a problem of sexually transmitted diseases. So he said, well, let's make protection. But they failed to realize that you can't put protection over a person's heart. But they said, we can get protection to prevent against STDs. And, and they did that, but then they realized that even that is not foolproof. And babies still were being born after the fact. And so Roe versus Wade in the 70s, and then abortion came in, and, and all of this other stuff that leads us to the sexual confusion that we have now in our culture. And with the proliferation of, in 1993, there are 600 websites total in the world. 600 in 1993. Today, there are billions and billions and billions and billions of them, and so many of them are teaching us odd and strange and anti-biblical views about sexuality, and they're invading into our homes. And with the advent of the iPhone in the mid-2000, 2006 or 2007, now it's accessible to every person who has a device in their hand without anybody ever knowing. And our views of sexuality are warped beyond understanding and a generation is being stolen by Satan. Their purity, their understanding of what is right and what is true. Part of the reason why men are getting married later and later and later and later is because they don't know how to have relationships with real, live women. Because they've had too many relationships with things on a screen. That was happening in the culture in Corinth also. How was that happening? It was because they believed in this one major, major lie. It says here in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Body is not meant for sexuality, but for the Lord. Here's what they were, here's what they were saying. The body's for food and food for the body. It's just a physical thing. That's what they were saying about sex. Hey, you know what? Hey, I'm, I'm thirsty, I got a drink, I got a thirst for sex, I got I to gotta satisfy that urge or something bad is going to happen to me. And so they go and they, and they fulfill their sexual urges outside of the context of marriage. The problem is they fail to realize that it's not just a physical union. The two become one, the releasing of dopamine and oxytocins. I remember watching, when I was in high school, I remember watching this like, it was uh, like the Twilight Zone. I don't know if you remember that show, The Twilight Zone. It's like freaky, it's like alternative universe, but it it's like makes you think about all these crazy things. But there was this young man and young woman, and they were watching a movie in the dark at one of their homes on the sofa. And then they started doing kissy time. And then it started getting more and more heated and more and more sensual. And I still remember they both started saying, I want your body. I want your body. That's what they kept saying. This is a TV show that came on network television on like ABC or NBC or something like that. I want your body. I want your body. And then it kind of like fast forwards to the end of the night and they're crying. They're crying. They're sitting in the exact same place. Right? Nothing else has changed. They're crying. Man here, woman here. They're crying, crying, crying. And it pans out and the man has the woman's body on him. <laughs> like he's become uh, his face with her body and she became her face with his body. And they're crying. They're like, oh my gosh, I got your body and I don't want it because what they failed to realize was that sex is not just about the body. You get all of them as you give all of yourself to that person because it's never just about I want your body you cannot have their body without getting every part of them 
That's why Paul says, don't you know that when you unite yourself with a prostitute, the two are becoming one. It's just physical. Can I ask you why so many lives are devastated by a simple physical act? If it's just the same thing as eating, how come we don't have the same guilt over uh, a food that we ate 13 years ago? Or the first time I ate this thing and my life was never the same again, it's not. Don't believe the lie that it's just physical. The movie Vanilla Sky, I don't know who said it because I just read this quote somewhere. But someone who is in a sexual relationship with somebody breaks up with them and someone says to them, don't you know, okay, don't you know that when you have sex, your body is writing checks that the rest of you cannot cash? Something to that effect. They're saying it's not just a physical thing because you cannot put protection over your heart, but that's ultimately what goes when you give yourself in a sexual relationship to somebody. Paul, Paul says, when uh, every other sin you commit against uh, outside of your body, but he who sins sexually uh, sins against one's own body. That's what he says in verse 18. What does it mean? It means, yeah, other sins you commit against other people, and yet definitely sexual sin is, happens, it affects other people, but it affects you as much as it affects anybody else. And he says, to deny that is to believe in a lie. Studies have been done. There's this one study that said if you are a sexually promiscuous woman, then the rate of you having high-level depression skyrockets 11 times versus if you had never had sex as a woman, 11 times. It's not just physical. The rates of, uh, of suicidal ideation, right, the rates of uh, self-esteem plummet the more sexual partners that you have. Right? When you sin sexually, it's not just with another person. Right? You're crippling your own soul. You cannot have, there, there, are, there is never a victimless sexual immorality. Right? There's always a victim. There's always a victim, whether it's you, whether it's your future spouse. Right? Whenever you treat your boyfriend or girlfriend like someone other than your mother or father, brother or sister, with absolute purity, there's always going to be consequences. And we're seeing ripple effects. When I, when I deal with premarital counseling, this is, this is in, in, in ways that I haven't dealt with this 10 years ago. But it's coming up because people are being, they're just being, they're just being handcuffed by it. Right, you think this is just my single man issue, my single woman issue, and we'd be foolish to think that it's just a single uh, one gender issue. It's all of us. It's dangerous and it's destructive when you take it out of the context of marriage. Right? Just like a fire can be great and helpful and beneficial and pleasurable when you're sitting by it on a cold night or when you're using it to make s'mores, but when you let that thing go outside of its context, it wreaks havoc. It's dangerous and it's destructive. That's why because of the release of all of these chemicals, the two becoming one, sometimes you, you, you wonder, why, am I, why can I not stop this relationship with this girl or with this guy? I know he's not good. I know she's not good for me. She's an alcoholic. He's a druggie. He's got a hot temper. She's got these issues. But for some reason, I can't. The reason why is because when we get introduced sexuality into a relationship outside of the realm of marriage, it checkers our ability to evaluate the person's character. We become addicted to who they are and to the pleasure that comes. And by the time the rush wears off, we realize that we're in a committed relationship with somebody that we never wanted to be in a committed relationship with. It's dangerous, and it's destructive. And some of you have been hurt. 
not because of your own sexual sin, but because of sin that has been committed against you. And if I could speak very pastorally for just a few moments, if that's you, first of all, I am so sorry. And God's heart weeps over the brokenness and the pain that you have been through. But in the eyes of God, you are still pure and you are still clean in his eyes if that has been done to you. But do not use that as an excuse for you to go and fulfill your or indulge in your own sexual desires. He's saying that's not your sin. That's not your fault. It's not something if someone has, if you, be, if you are a victim to somebody. He's saying that's not who you are. Okay? That does not define you. But be free from that. Right? Find your freedom. Receive your forgiveness. Uh, the forgiveness that, extend the forgiveness that needs to be extended. But don't use that to say, well, I need to go and I need to go and get back at these people by going and giving my body to these other people. Others of us have been hurt by our own sexual sin. I know there's danger there. There's harm there. But again, for any of us who are in those situations where you feel like you've been hurt or you've compromised or you've been compromised, can I plead with you, don't suffer through that alone. Right? Don't go through that alone. As Eugene shared, when you share your joy, it doubles the joy, but when you share your pain, it divides that pain. It doesn't double the pain by you sharing it with somebody else. In fact, it allows other people to walk alongside of you in order that you might get the healing and the restoration that is necessary for you. There's help available. There's, you know, there, there's a, a ton of counselors that we could recommend to if you feel like that would be the best thing for you. But understand, yeah, that's not who you are. Okay, that's not who you are. There are consequences, and, and probably the worst of all is if it doesn't go unchecked, it says here in verse 9, do you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But the hope is that's what some of you were. It says you may have been those things, but that's not what defines you today. You might think, well, I just look at a little bit of pornography. I just mess around a little bit with one or two people. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Okay. Here's what Jesus says. How, how pure do we need to be? Here's what he says. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, he said, if you've looked with lust at another person, you've already committed adultery. If you've looked at somebody and you've seen them as anything other than a brother, sister, mother, and father in Christ with absolute purity, he says, you've already crossed that line. The problem is not in the action. The problem is in the heart. Our hearts are sinful. But he says, that's what some of you were, but here's the grace, but you can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and through the spirit of the living God means that does not define your life. You will either stand before God with the full weight of your sin on you, or you'll trade that weight for the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the another in the fire, standing there with you. And you can say, listen, I cannot, my record alone will bar me from heaven. I cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But there is one who's able 
to cleanse me and to wash me, who allows me to stand justified and perfect before the throne of a holy God, and that's Jesus himself, and I put my trust in him so that I can be completely clean and pure as if I'd never sinned, as if nothing had ever been done to me. That's the hope that we have in Christ, and that's the hope that he offers to you and to me. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was constantly running into, and I think intentionally, sexually broken people. Do you understand? The stigma of sexual sin was not far from Jesus. His very mother, though she had committed no wrong, was scandalized because she was pregnant without ever being in a marriage relationship. Do you think Jesus understands what it is to empathize and to grieve over the brokenness And the tarnished reputation of those who have been accused, whether rightfully or wrongfully, of sexual sin. There was a woman in in John chapter 8 who had committed adultery, but she was probably set up and framed. And they brought her in, and everyone began to condemn her. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like everyone who knows me condemns me because of the mistakes that I made, because of the past, because of my my past record. And, And everyone is condemning. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if any of you is without sin, then you be the first one to condemn them. And everyone dropped their stones and walked away because all of us are in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Who can condemn us then? There's only one who could possibly condemn us. The only one who never sinned was Jesus, but he never picked up a stone. Instead, he looked at her and he looked at you and he looks at me and he says that neither do I condemn you either. If you come to Jesus in full confession of your sin, Jesus Christ looks upon you as if you had never, ever, ever sinned before, as if you'd never, ever, ever been victimized before. He looks at you in the perfect love that he alone could give, and he says, I forgive you, so go and sin no more. You are not your own, verse 20, chapter 6. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's it. Like, Jesus, you, you, don't, you don't yell at me. You don't condemn me. You don't look at me like I'm messed up. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wait, Jesus, but do you know? Do you know everything? I do. But Jesus, do you know what happened? Like that, that one night, you know that thing that no one else knows? He says, I do. Wait, Jesus, like you forgive me of even, even that, like all of that stuff, like everything, every last thing that I've done, even the one thing I did last night, you forgive me for that? I do. Wait, you like... There's, there's, there's no, like, who could love me like that? Who could, I, I never thought that it was possible that anybody could see all that in me and love me, and that's why I've been scared to death in this life. Like, who could ever, who could ever forgive? Who could ever release me from, who could ever set me free from that bondage? Who could ever love me? Jesus says, I do. And I will never, ever, ever stop loving you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you'll ever do. And here's the grace of God. Here's the grace of God that even if you never, ever, 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 ever change, he will still love you. In fact, that's the only person who can ever change is the one who realizes that even if I never change, he's not going to stop loving me. 
because we fight for holiness and purity not in order to win acceptance, but because we've already been given that acceptance. We don't fight for sexual purity for acceptance. We fight for sexual purity from acceptance because Jesus has opened his arms and he's embraced you and me, the broken, the messed up, the idolater, the sexually immoral, the one who thinks awful and lewd thoughts. He accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us remain in that place. And so he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Receive that, receive the forgiveness, drink deeply from that well, and then go and live in the glorious freedom that I've won for you. Receive the love and then go and sin no more. That's his word for us. Let's pray together. Let's pray. We reflect upon the grace of God. I don't want for us to have to revisit difficult things from our past. If Jesus has forgiven by virtue of your confession and the finished work of Christ on the cross, you don't need to redig up these old wounds and things that have already been forgiven. As you think about these things, the difference between the enemy voice and the voice of God's spirit is the enemy will speak words of condemnation but the spirit will speak words of conviction condemnation wants you to feel guilty and run away from Jesus into greater danger and destructiveness conviction causes you to run to Jesus to find repentance and life you feel like you're in a place where you have unconfessed sexual sin before the Lord, spend some time surrendering that to the Lord, realizing that you've hurt yourself, and you've hurt others, and you've hurt God. Let's ask the Lord that his mercy would flow over us. He loves you. He'll set you free. He'll forgive you. Others, if there's things in our hearts that we've yet to surrender to the Lord. Let's give that over to the Lord. Let's experience the nearness of God's presence with us now. But let's drink from the all-satisfying well that is in Jesus. His never-ending love for sinful, broken people like me and like you. He will never stop loving us. The unrelenting, passionate, Furious love of God. It's like a waterfall pouring down over your heart in order to let you know how loved you are. Spend a few moments in repentance and receiving the love of God, the forgiveness that need be, receiving the comforting presence of the Lord God. Let's pray for a couple moments like that.
prepare to come to the Lord's table, table full of grace, where the Lord Jesus himself meets with us through these elements, we could experience and know intimacy with our Savior as we come to this table. Let's confess any other sins within our hearts in order that we could rightly appropriate. So the more we confess, the bigger the cross becomes. The bigger sinner, the bigger Savior we need. The more we can identify our sin and surrender that to the Lord, the more beautiful this table of amazing grace will be to us. So we spend some time now in repentance, asking the Lord that he would cleanse us because of the cross and the fountain of blood that flows from Calvary into our lives. Let's uh, spend a few moments in repentance and surrender in order that we might be able to come and approach this table and receive the blessing that the Lord has for us here. Let's pray for another minute or so. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that for all who have committed sin, even within our heart, our mind, our thoughts, our motives, that there is forgiveness. If we're honest with you and with ourselves and we admit and we acknowledge that probably over 90-some percent of us have failed need your cleansing grace in our lives in this area as it relates to lust and purity and sexuality. And yet we thank you for the grace that continues to run after us and tells us that there is a better way, that there's got to be a better way than what our world is pushing on us because it's devastating. Cultures, nations, generations of people. And in grace, your word tells us there is a better way. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to stand on that as we receive the forgiveness of God, as we receive your mercy and grace, as we stand on the beauty that is the gospel, to know that it's good news before it's good advice, and the good news is that in our sin, you saw us and you died for us, and you loved us out of our sin in order that we might live a life devoted to you. And so help us to do that. And as we come to this table, may your grace continue to amaze us you would love and save us at such a cost. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.